Okay, now you can be honest. Um, I mean, you, you are in church. But hold on to your purses because not everybody here is saved. Um, how many of you, how many of you have read the Da Vinci Code? Third of you? <laughs> yeah. um, guys, it is quite a phenomenon, and I, I don't know whether you're uh, um, aware of just what a phenomenon it is, but um, I, I just thought it would be helpful and, and wise to address it uh, on Sunday morning. I don't know whether you heard me say that, but um, it's when, when you talk, when you sit down with Jonathan Todd, for instance, or Will Savell, um, Jonathan Todd said to us the other day, he said, if you don't know Jonathan, he um, labors, part of his job description is with college students, that um, so many of them have bought into that, that thing um, very deeply, and, um, and as our high school kids as well. So just thought it was, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, it's just one Sunday, um, but just... Um, it's about to get, I, I guess you all know that there's a movie coming out. Did you know that? I mean, it's, it's about to get this huge burst of interest once uh, the movie comes out. So, anyway, um, open your Bibles with me to back to Romans 8, and let's see if we can't make some progress. You know, I am, um, y'all laugh at me behind my back, I know, uh, saying, you know, progress. Um, but, I mean, guys, look at this. I mean, look at verse 33, which is where we are. Um, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There are two huge words, not, not to mention the, the, the reference to the first person of the Trinity, two huge words in there, in that one verse. I mean, I, we could just bounce right over them, I guess, uh, justifies and elect. Those are, those are huge words. Um, so, I, you know, I just choose to do it a little bit more slowly. Um, um, Guys, let me read you verses 33 and 34 because they're really kind of a unit and uh, there's some discussion as to where they're divided. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Uh, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There's, there's some question as to whether or not that the opening sentence of verse 34 really should be found with verse 33. Um, so the, the, the two verses are, are, um, are, are pretty much attached. But, I mean, just look at verse 34. Look, look at what is mentioned in there. Um, uh, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the session of, God, of Christ to the right hand of God the Father, and his intercession for his people. I mean, how could you do that fast? I mean, there's, there's just a whole lot of stuff that's included in there, and we'll, we'll try to cram it into a week. And, but tonight we're just going to take a look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Um, gang, you may have forgotten, but the, the whole point of the Apostle Paul in this section of his uh, epistle is um, to encourage and give grounds, enough grounds, for God's people to feel confident and safe. Uh, it, is seeming, it seems to me that it's very important to the Apostle Paul that God's people know that they are safe. And I've said that to you before in here, that um, 
uh, it seems that God's people live the most heroically, the more security they have. When they're insecure, um, they, they don't tend to live quite as... Um, uh, as excitedly. So, it's... There is, I think, uh, um, a lot of repetition. He's doing it from different vantage points, but the point is still the same. He wants God's people to know that they're safe. And he, and he addresses that in various ways. And that's what he's doing here. Um, th- these two verses, 33 and 34, deal with the possibility of our finding ourselves ultimately condemned or rejected. And now he's answering that, of course, in the negative, but it's, it's like um, the people of God cannot, cannot quite believe that they really are as safe as they are. It's just too good to be true. And so Paul is, wants to pound at uh, the Roman church that um, if you're afraid that there's going to ultimately be something that's going to happen, that's gonna in, that you're going to be in the condemned, let's talk about that. Uh, is there any possibility whatsoever of anything arising that could bring us into condemnation? Guys, uh, th- these two little verses here, along with the others in this context, want to communicate just how fully secure a believer is. A- and that security is that which grows out of this great scheme and plan of redemption that God has unfolded. Um, what is there to fear under the government of this great and good and just and powerful God? That's what we're looking at tonight. You know, our biggest fears, I think, um, are things that come from within, our, you know, our own consciences. Our own conscience is what um, troubles us so, um, and it's usually associated with sin. You know, we've, we've blown it, and then our conscience begins to operate, and and so we begin to wonder, well, maybe there is something that will ultimately ruin me. And Paul wants to try and address that. Now, um, that's kind of an overview. Um, there is, in verse 33, one of those, those fighting words that people get all hot and bothered about, the, um, the term elect. Um, I don't get hot and bothered about it. I love the word, and, and um, we don't have a whole lot of time to go into it tonight, but you know, gang, God has always had an elect people. Um, in the Old Testament, those elect people were known as Israel. In the New Testament, um, those elect people are called the church. Believers in the past, in the present, and in the future. And we can uh, debate the whys and the wherefores of election if you like, although we're not going to do it here. Uh, if you'd like to, you can sign up for the systematics class that's taught twice a year and and we will just go round and round for eight hours. It's just great fun. Um, but we're not going to do it here. But there is one thing I do need to say. Um, when you start trying to sort that word out and what's, uh, what's all crammed into it, I want to tell you again, I did this back in the fall, but there's, i got to tell you again, um, I don't know how you're going to come to understand the word elect. Uh, I'll tell you how I understand it in the eight hours of systematics if you want to take it. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you're going to under, uh, uh, understand it. But here's one way that you can't understand it. 
the, the reason I, I go out of my way to address this is because it is kind of the common way that people dance around the term. And you don't want this. I, and I want to show you why you don't want it. Um, you, you know, you, you read your New Testament and you come to, by the way, it, it's also, I mean, that same uh, fighting word is found in chapter 11, verse 7. Um, uh, it, it's found, you know, probably 15, 17 times in the New Testament. You, so you've got to figure out something about what it means. You've got to come to some conclusion about what it means. And um, the, the, uh, the general uh, idea is, <laughs> and this is so prevalent in the South, so prevalent in the Bible Belt, that you are to understand election in terms of foreknowledge. And that, I, I dare say, is what many of you have been taught. And I'm telling you, that's the last thing that you want to believe. And I'm going to tell you why in just a second. But that is that election is based on foreknowledge. And what that means is this, that God looks down the corners of time and sees that uh, old Larry Kunkel there is going to um, pray to receive Christ. And as a result of what he sees Larry's going to do um, at this juncture in his life, God then elects him. That is, that is election based on foreknowledge. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to, but I'm telling you, most of you have heard that. If you've come up in any kind of, uh, um, well, most in the South, uh, that's what you've been taught, that uh, you're to understand election based on foreknowledge. And let me, let me give it to you again. Here, here's how it goes. Uh, election based on foreknowledge, that God looks down the quarters of time and he sees what, who's going to receive Christ, and as a result of seeing uh, what they're going to do, he then elects them. And that's what is the majority position. And ladies and gentlemen, you don't, you don't, you don't want to believe that. You don't want that to be true. And I, I, I bet you, I mean, if, I'm, if I can do my job tonight, I think you'll see that you don't want that to be true. But the question is whether I can do my job. But um, now think about it. Think with me. Okay, here's what God does. He looks down the quarters of time. Now, you know what I mean by the quarters of time? I mean, does that, does that confuse anyone? He looks down, you know, through the future, you know, all the way to the end of the age. And, and he looks down and he sees who it is that's going to receive Christ. And he says, ah, okay, here's one, here's one, okay. And thus, as a result of seeing what uh, they do, um, they are then made the elect. So election is based on foreknowledge. Do you know how awful that is? Let me tell you. What you've just done by explaining any, anything in those terms is to destroy a gospel of grace. Because what you've said is that in response to something that I do, God then responds to me. So what you've done is take faith, and you have turned faith into a work. Ah, I see what Larry Kunkel did. He did this. He exercised faith. And so, because of what he did, I'm going to make him elect. And so what you've done, guys, you've overturned the gospel at its very core. It's no longer a gospel of grace, it's a gospel based on the on works, and the work is the work of faith. I saw that person do 
that thing called faith, and thus I then respond to him, says God. Guys, you don't want that. You know, um, you do know, don't you, that the New Testament's pretty clear about what faith is? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift. So, I, 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 we don't have time to go any further than that. I just that, The reason I wanted to address that was because that's the predominant position, and you don't even want that. I mean, and I hope you can see that. I mean, gosh, that should be utterly repugnant to us. Ugh. Ugh. That God is, is um, what's the word? Um, uh, that God responds to something that I do. That is, uh, he is... What's the word, Jeff? Come on, help me out here. Uh, that's close, but that's not it. What's that? Well, that's not it either. But, uh, I mean, it, it certainly was a, a suggestion. Not a very good one, Alan, but a suggestion nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, but you, you see what I'm saying. You know, that, that God is waiting to respond to something that he watches you do. Dang. That's not, that's not grace. That's merit. And anyway, we don't want anything to do with that. Now, um, if you want to go further than that, then you're going to sign up for eight hours of, of systematics. The point of this passage is really not to try and teach you anything about uh, God's sovereign election. That's not what it's designed to do. It's, in fact, it is using this sovereign election to communicate security for you. Remember, the whole idea is that God is, uh, that you're safe and he's trying to communicate that, and that's one of the things that he uses to do so. The, the point of the passage is to communicate that there, there is an election unto grace and salvation and that the elect are safe. That's the point of the passage. No one can lay anything to their charge. Um, this, that election is the source of all our confidence. Not something that I did, but something that he did. Do you see the difference in that, guys? One is glorious and the other... You know, if, if my safety and, is, and my confidence of my security is found on something, is, is resting on something that I do, who's to say that I won't change that up tomorrow? But my confidence and my safety rests on something that he does. Um, so, um, uh, why am I safe? Because it is God who justifies. That's what the text says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If he is the justifier, who could possibly condemn? You know, there's an interesting, um, and I, I think you've probably seen it. It's in, you don't need to turn, but Revelation chapter 12. Um, there is a condemner. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You know, guys, um, I became a Christian when I was uh, 22 years old. 
I remember going to seminary and sitting in a seminary class. I said this to you not too long ago, and Pete Hammonds was was teaching this class on something or other. I don't know. Uh, he was with InterVarsity, and he was teaching this class. And, um, uh, and, and so he went around the class, and he said, uh, how long have you people been Christian? It wasn't about 15 of us in there. How long have you been Christian? Oh, seven years, oh, five years. And he came to me, and, um, and um, he said, how long have you been a Christian, Jim? I said, I've been a Christian about three years. And Pete Hammonds almost broke into tears. That's an overstatement, but I'm good at that. He said, um, three years? And you're about to be a, a minister of the gospel? Three years? And I thought, you know, I know what I'm doing. I mean, I got this seminary education, and, I, you know, I, I've been taught all these glorious things. And now, you know, I, So then I got uh, to Ocala, Florida, plant a church. And um, I was 27 at the time, and, and my wife was eight months pregnant. And and uh, with our first, and so there we were in Florida heat, um, and, and I'm starting a church. And uh, so started that church, and uh, you know it uh, kind of started. At least I thought it was slow, but that church became the largest church in the city of Ocala. It's not anymore, but uh, it became the largest church in the city of Ocala. Ocala was not that big, <laughs> uh, and it didn't take a whole lot, but it was. It was the largest uh, uh, um, uh, church in the city, and. And so, you know, I, and I started at 27, so, you know, I just trip into the light fandango, and, and uh, you know, you, you go from here to here, and then you got the this, and so I'm moving into the 35s, you know, and, and, um, and things are getting a little uh, tense, and then uh, at uh, about 36 and a half, my world absolutely I told you this, you know, I, I stayed 10 years in Ocala, and it was nine and a half of the best years of my life. It was just that other six months that almost killed me. I, I tell you that to, to say this. I don't know if anybody else in this room has experienced this, but if you haven't, I don't know what you're a part of. But I, I can remember lying in bed in those, that six-month period feeling Satan didn't create anything. He just makes it worse. And there you are in the dark of the night and you can't sleep. And, and, and every fear that you could possibly imagine comes tumbling into your brain. And I remember standing in my driveway with... Um, um, oh, I can't believe I lost it. Didn't remember his name. But this man... and. Um, and crying, I mean, you know, by the way, I told you that story about the, I came a Christian, because life had just really been pretty smooth. Pretty Doc Cordray, uh, Mickey Cordray. Um, I, I was, it was pretty smooth until, you know, 36 and a half. And I remember standing in my driveway and crying with this Cordray man and, and saying this. We were having a garage sale, and he'd come over, I don't know, buy something, I don't know, but... Uh, I, I, and I said to him, I, I never will forget this. I said, you know, the hardest part about this whole thing is to think that this stuff that I value so highly, that is uh, redemption, salvation, a relationship with God through Christ, that this stuff I'm not a part of. 
to feel forsaken and you know, on the outside looking in, and if I were to have died, would have, I mean, I wouldn't have, but to think that. Now, I don't know whether anybody else in this room has ever experienced, but I'm telling you, it is the absolute nadir of life. You know what a nadir is? You have the apex, and then you have the nadir down here. It's the bottom. Um, the, the point is, Revelation talks about the accuser of the brethren. He didn't create my arrogance. He just reminded me of it in the dark of the night. And his fangs are a whole lot bigger at night than they are in the daytime, aren't they? And you struggle and toil and roll and and cry and fear. And who shall bring anything against God's elect? It is God. Who justifies? You know, I, I, I'm sure I read that verse before age 37. But it never, it never got into my whole soulish system. And perhaps it hasn't gotten into yours. Guys, Paul's argument in this passage is basically this. If God is the justifier, then accusations are ridiculous. They're foolish because justice has been satisfied. God is the justifier. Uh, We can face life. We can face our sin. We can face the devil with a towering, infallible confidence. Why? Because God is the justifier. Um, nothing can thwart him in his purposes for us. And, and unless you see your salvation, ladies and gentlemen, solely due to the great scheme of redemption and plan of God, you will never be certain about your future. Because you will constantly be looking at, well, did I do this all right? Did I do that all right? Did I fail here? Did I do that bad? I, I wonder if I'm a part of this. If you don't get your, your focus off of what it is that you've done and, and plant it in the justifier, You'll always, you will always wrestle with the outcome of your future. And I'm telling you, gang, I couldn't want anything less for you than that. That is misery. When you, when you have <clears throat> sung the hymns and taught the classes and learned to love this gospel, then all of a sudden you think, doesn't apply to me. I'm not in this. The reason I think that struggles occur, guys, is because we keep wondering, did we do it all right? Have we done it well enough? Anytime, unless, I mean, unless you see your salvation is solely due to the great plan of God in your life, you will always be uncertain about your future. The, the real way to know we are safe is believing that God loves us based on what He's done and not because of anything that we have done to merit His attention. You know, um, take baptism. Well, you know, I got baptized and, uh, you know, 
and then you start, you know, you, you, you blow it and you start thinking, well, I mean, uh, was I baptized right? I mean, uh, was I really, uh, you know, sincere? Or you go through confirmation class. Well, that's the reason I'm saved is my confirmation class. And then you think, well, wait a minute. Who taught that confirmation class? I mean, did he know what he was talking about? So, guys, you pour over all these little things that you've done, and you're always going to come to some place where, where Satan is going to get a hold of you and accuse until he drives you absolutely batty. Um, let, me, let me point out a couple of things about the text, and we'll quit. Um, I want you to notice a few things about it. Um, I want you to note that man's relationship to God here is pictured as, as a legal arrangement. It is God who justifies. Now, guys, if you want sweet emotions, which is a wonderful thing, and, and I long for them, I enjoy them like the rest of you, but if you want sweet emotions, then you need to emphasize sonship and, and fatherhood. But when Satan accuses you, you must know that God has acted legally. That, that in terms of the covenant, he has acted legally toward you. And thus, you can answer the accusations. Gang, God is not only the lawgiver, he's the judge. Uh, Genesis 18 says, uh, will the judge of all the earth do right? He's the lawgiver and he's the judge. And when Satan accuses, he does so in terms of my violations of the law. So my confidence is that the one who is the lawgiver and the judge is the one who justifies me. You know, he keeps reminding me of how I uh, violated the law over here. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the one who gave the law and the one who is the judge of the law, he's the one to justify me. Therefore, I'm safe. Now, guys, we could spend days, I mean, really, uh, on this word justification, and but we won't, but let me just kind of hurriedly. To justify means a whole lot more than simply pardon or to even to forgive or to uh, uh, quit. Guys, the Bible knows nothing of mere pardon. Um, the doctrine of justification states that, that God not only declares me to be righteous or not guilty, but He also regards me as just. He regards me as if I had never sinned. Um, um, do you remember? Do you remember years ago? Uh, maybe anybody got a Revised Standard Version Bible in here? Anybody got an RSV? Does anybody use those anymore? There was a great debate over these two words: expiation at the end and um, propitiation. Guys, there's uh, there's a lot of difference in those two terms. This is the term, by the way, the RSV uses this term. Just about everybody else uh, bolted from it because it's a word that simply def um, defines kind of a, a washing away of sin. Propitiation is an entirely different word. Propitiation has to do with the satisfaction of the, of the demands of the law. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that I hope will illustrate this and then we'll quit. Um, do you know uh, the story in Leviticus 16? Leviticus 16 is one of the Old Testament passages in the Bible. 
Okay, it's a biggie. Leviticus 16 is what? It's the Day of the Atonement. And do you remember the the Day of the Atonement? What you know, the high priest went in back in that one place back there and all that business. You've heard of this, haven't you? Hello, everybody still awake? Um, you've heard of the Day of Atonement. All right, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. It's all in there. You got the scapegoat, and you got the other goat, and you got a bull, and you got just blood everywhere. Um. And so the priest takes the blood of one of those goats, I think, um, one of those animals. He takes the blood back into this holy place and he pours it someplace. Where is he pouring? What would you say? The mercy seat. Now, guys, that, that's, that, that term mercy seat is found uh, several times in Leviticus 16. Now, stay with me. Uh, here's what he does. He, where, by the way, where is the mercy seat? It's right on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and, uh, you know, and, and inside the Ark of the Covenant is what, what's inside there? The law. Uh, the Ten Commandments are in there. You know, the terms of the covenant are in there. So the high priest goes in there, and uh, representing all of Israel, and he takes blood, and he pours it on this mercy seat thing, and by so doing, he covers the, the mercy seat. Uh, in essence... The clamorings of the law against me are quieted by blood. You've got to take another step with me. The word propitiate, well, no, let me, um, the word, no, can't do it that way either. Um, the Greek word that's translated propitiation is the word halasmos. Stay with me. You know, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then the New Testament was written in Greek, and then about 70 A.D., I think, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was called the, the Septuagint. So, um, there's a lot of insights that you can get from the Septuagint. It's not inspired, but it's a lot of, a lot of good... Um, Grammatical insights. Now, here's the point. When, when, the, when the Septuagint got ready to, to translate this word, mercy seat, when they translated this Hebrew word into Greek, they used this word. And this is the word that is in, translated in the New Testament as propitiation. So the point is this, propitiation involves this quieting of the clamorings of the law against you. God has, I mean, the lawgiver has been satisfied. And he's been satisfied based on blood that covered the law. And in response to that, that God justifies me. So, who can bring anything against, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Use that in the dark of the night, ladies and gentlemen, when you're rolling around with your own sense of conviction over sin. Let's pray.
Our Father, I, I do pray that the, the richness of these words and the richness of these truths might find their way into the hearts of your people. I pray that they might discover that they're a whole lot safer than they ever dreamed they were. That they might discover that their safety is not based on their continuing, their continuing performance. But their safety is based on the, the great plan and scheme of redemption unfolded in Christ Jesus for your people. Father, we are safe. But if our safety depended on one thing that I had to do or didn't do, I wouldn't be safe. My safety is solely based on that which you have done for me. Now grant that to your people. Might it sink deep into their souls. And might they be able to fight their own spiritual battles. Pleading the, the completed work of a Savior on which the Father then justifies. We, um, we pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, and good night.